Good morning, everyone. A warm welcome from me as well uh, to Liberty Church. So glad you could join us. Uh, my name's Ludo. I'm one of the leaders here. And today I'm going to be continuing on in our series on the Apostles' Creed. As Matt was saying before, uh, the Apostles' Creed is a Christian statement of belief that's been widely used throughout the broader church uh, for well over a thousand years. And it uh, really succinctly lays out the core beliefs that Christians have held on uh, onto through the centuries. And the part of the creed uh, that I'm going to be focusing on today is uh, a part that speaks of uh, the suffering and death of Jesus. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. So far, our journey through the Apostles' Creed, uh, it's been one of great hope and joy. But this seems like uh, a dark turn in the story, doesn't it? We've heard so far about uh, God the Father being the creator of heaven and earth. We've heard about uh, Jesus our Lord being conceived by the Holy Spirit and being uh, miraculously born of the Virgin Mary. Um, it's all very uh, grand and powerful. But now we get to this section and where we hear about Jesus suffering, being crucified, dying and being buried. It sounds like a story of defeat, doesn't it? Not of not a victory. So how can this possibly fit into the story of uh, an almighty and powerful God and how he works in our world? Jesus' disciples must have felt this as well. Uh, can you imagine what it would have felt like? It would have felt like utter, devastating defeat. This guy has invited you to follow him and you've given up everything in your life. You've dropped everything and you've believed in him and followed him. And then this happens. He dies the most humiliating death there is. Can you imagine the brutal disappointment? And what about the Jews of the time uh, who would have thought that Jesus was the Messiah, some of them at least, um, and this part of the story really did not fit the narrative that they would have had in their minds of uh, this conquering saviour king. They would have been expecting a triumphant Messiah to uh, come and drive out the Roman armies and restore national sovereignty to Israel. But then Jesus dies at the hands of those Romans and is buried into a tomb. So this would have felt like uh, the ultimate disproval of Jesus' claims to be uh, the, the promised Messiah. And can you imagine the disappointment of those people as well? Imagine thinking, uh, wow, the, the Messiah has come. The kingdom is going to be restored in my lifetime, and I'm going to witness it. And then this happens. And what about now? It's, it wasn't only unexpected uh, back then. It's also unexpected for us now in the sense that uh, this kind of goes against our own ideas of triumph and victory as well. We really love stories where the good guys win. We love that classic uh, hero's journey kind of story that sort of classic story template where uh, a hero embarks on a quest and then is confronted with a crisis where the odds seem stacked against them. And then at some point, they're at the edge of being defeated. Uh, but then right at the end, they gloriously and sometimes miraculously uh, overcome and all is well. There's a bit more to it than that, but that's the general gist of it. And seriously, countless stories follow this sort of line. Think of uh, any Marvel Universe film or a textbook example would be uh, Lord of the Rings. So uh, we, we really love this stuff. And on some level, 
we feel that this is how things ought to go. The good guy wins. The good guy should overcome. That's, of course, how it should, how it should end up. Yet at the center of our faith is a man who died, is a man who was crushed, who was publicly humiliated. This seems like total defeat. So why is it that Christians talk about the death of Jesus so much? Why is it that Christians celebrate the cross instead of covering it up? Christians wear crosses around their necks. Christians sing songs about the cross. And we put the cross at a really central point in our creed, in our core statement of belief. This sort of thing, it doesn't seem to be fitting of this terrible event. But as we look more closely at the cross and at the death of Jesus, and of course with the benefit of hindsight and knowing how the story ends, we see that in his death, Jesus is victorious. So there's great beauty and triumph in these words in the creed because the crucifixion that Jesus willingly endured for us has astounding implications that should bring us great joy. The passage we're looking at today is from the book of John, chapter 18, verse 29, through to chapter 19, verse 16. It's one of the gospel accounts of Jesus' encounter with Pilate, Pontius Pilate. Uh, so I'll get you all to pause the video now to read this passage together and then to pray with whoever you're with. And then after that, you can hit play again and we'll continue. So uh, why don't you press pause now to read and pray. Okay, welcome back. I wonder what your initial uh, instinctive reaction is when you read a passage like this. One thing that really stands out to me is that it's written in a very distinctive style. This is uh, a really, uh, really a sort of eyewitness account. It's a blow-by-blow -blow recounting of uh, the events around Jesus' death. It covers uh, key things that happened, key places, key things uh, that were said, it's really written as a recounting of facts. In the first three verses of chapter 19, uh, we see some of the ways in which Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, being brutally flogged, having a crown of thorns jammed onto his head and being mocked and slapped. And then after the section that we read, uh, it goes on in chapter 19 in detail about the crucifixion of Jesus, then his death and uh, the Roman soldier putting a spear in his side to make sure he was really dead. And then finally, his burial in the tomb of a wealthy Jewish leader, Joseph of Arimathea. And the fact that we have this eyewitness account detailing the events around Jesus' death uh, make it clear to us that we are in fact dealing uh, with real events in history. And the way that this is worded in the creed also makes it clear that this is how Christians have always understood uh, the death of Christ as being grounded in real human history and certainly not in the realm of a metaphor or allegory. And I think that's why Pontius Pilate is mentioned by name in the creed. The only humans actually mentioned in the creed, apart from Jesus himself, uh, are Mary and Pilate. And it's obvious why Jesus is in there. It's fairly obvious why Mary is in there as the the virgin mother of Jesus through which he miraculously entered into our world. But it's not immediately obvious uh, why 
Pontius Pilate is in there. And I think that linking the events of the gospel to real human history is a really important part of that. I've spoken about similar things in church before in the context of the resurrection of Jesus, and that it's grounded in real human history. But it applies equally to the events surrounding Jesus' suffering and death, and, of course, his entire life. We worship a God who has revealed himself to us in the flesh and who's really stepped into humanity uh, and who has really become a part of history. But the power of this statement in the creed actually goes further than that. Uh, When we say together that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, we can uh, not only say that these are historical events that really happened, but we can also greatly rejoice in the truth of what that means for us. So what is that truth? Where, where is that victory in Christ, uh, in Christ's death that I was talking about before? Just a couple of weeks ago, we were celebrating uh, the day on which we remember Jesus' death at Easter, and we call it Good Friday. But why on earth is it good? Uh, why, why is Jesus' death good news? And there are three things that I want to say in response to that question of why Jesus' death is good news. Firstly, uh, the suffering and death of Christ brings us peace with God. So that means that it brings justification before God and it brings reconciliation with Him. Justification means that uh, our standing of guilt before God is removed and so we can stand before Him righteous. And uh, the fact that we get this through Christ's death is really clear from Scripture. In Romans 5, it says in verses 9 to 10, that since we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. But the obvious question is, why do we need reconciliation? Why do we need justification uh, in order to have peace with God? These verses talk about uh, being saved from the wrath of God, which is his holy and righteous judgment. But why on earth is that necessary? And the Bible's answer is that we all need justification because we are sinners. Each of us has turned away from God and gone his own way. We've actually made gods of ourselves Uh, And we've not acknowledged our need for the one true God. And in that state, the Bible describes us as enemies of God, as sinners. Our default standing before God is one of judgment. Just two chapters earlier in Romans 3, Paul has said that uh, nobody, not even one person, is righteous. Nobody actually seeks God and keeps his law. And that makes right relationship with our Creator impossible. And that's why we desperately need justification. We need righteousness as a gift from God because we can't achieve it on our own. We need that righteousness from him so that we can have close relationship with him, so that we can commune with him as we were created to do. And that's what reconciliation is. That's what is on offer here. That's what's wrapped up in this idea of having peace with God. And Romans 5 says that we have received it in Christ. 
We've been justified by his blood and having been justified, we are reconciled to him. We can have right relationship with him again. That is restored. And that is the core of the gospel, the core of the good news. And it's all wrapped up. It's all uh, centered around the blood of Jesus. And it's really important to understand with this as well that nobody, not a single person, uh, is... um, too far gone to be justified by the blood of Christ. No person is beyond the pale. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 3, to 24, that there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace. So there is truly no distinction. And Paul, of all people, knows this from personal experience. We know that before he became Uh, a follower of Jesus, when he was still called Saul, uh, he intensely persecuted the church. We see in Acts chapter 8 that Paul approved of the stoning of Stephen as he was preaching the gospel. And uh, it says that he ravaged the church and that he went from house to house, uh, dragging Christian men and women off to prison. And even just before his conversion, we read that he was breathing threats and murder against Christian people, against Jesus' disciples. He was really trying to wipe out Christians and the church. You could even compare Saul uh, to an ISIS commander today, someone who is religiously uh, pursuing the destruction of the church uh, and, and the destruction of Christ's followers. And while it's not clear whether he personally killed anyone, given his role and given the fervor with with which he was known to perform his role, uh, it's more than likely, highly likely, that he was indirectly involved in the deaths of many Christians. Yet even he was fully justified by the blood of Christ uh, and fully brought back into right relationship with God through faith in Christ as a total gift of God's grace. That is huge. So no matter who you are and no matter what you have done, through the death of Jesus, God has made a way for you to have relationship with him, for you to commune with him through faith. And that is so, so good for us. It's incredible news because to commune with God is to do what we were created to do. It really uh, fulfills the purpose of our existence. And so it's ultimately the thing that will lead us to the greatest satisfaction and joy. John Piper talks about uh, communion with God in one of his essays. He writes this about it. He says, Communion with God is the end for which we were created. The Bible says that we were created for the glory of God, yet glorifying God is not something we do after communing with him, but by communing with him. Many human deeds magnify the glory of God's goodness, but only if they flow from our contentment in communion with him. And I think we all feel that need uh, to commune with God in some way, even if we don't acknowledge it or realize it ourselves. We try to uh, fill that void in our souls with all sorts of things. You know what those things are for you. They may be uh, straight up negative things that you need to remove from your life, like some form of sin. But they may also be really great things like uh, family and friends and service to others. Things that do bring true joy, 
But even those things won't truly uh, fulfill you if you put them in first place in your life because really you were made for much more than those things. None of those things can replace true communion with God, truly uh, having joy in living as we were made to live in worship of him. So every time you read or say this part of the Apostles' Creed, that Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, you can greatly rejoice that through that death, you have peace with God and can commune with him. So that's the first reason uh, why Jesus' death is good news. Secondly, by the death of Christ, God establishes his church and unifies it. You may never have thought about it like this, but God actually purchased his church with the blood of Christ. It says in Acts 20, verse 28, uh, Paul is writing to the elders of the church in Ephesus, and he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So the church was bought with the blood of Christ. And the fact that each of us has been redeemed by the blood of Christ is also what unifies us. It binds us together. We have a common understanding of our position before God and of our position in respect of each other um, because uh, we have all received mercy from God through Jesus. I think that's what, what it's getting at in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, when it says, Once you are not a people but now you are a people. Sorry, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In receiving God's mercy, we become a people. The, the church universally, but certainly also locally in our church body here at Liberty Church, is an extremely diverse group of people. I think it's probably accurate to say that the only thing that we all have in common is that we are the recipients of God's mercy. And in our current situation, our church isn't even defined or unified by a meeting in the same physical space because we can't do that. Uh, but while meeting together is important and good, our unity is not based on that. It's based on the gospel. We are still the church and we are still a people established by God because we are still recipients of his mercy. And I think that is so wonderful. The unifying power of Christ's death is incredible. Just to illustrate the point, at Liberty Church, we have people from the Netherlands, Australia, Brazil, Korea, the US, the Ukraine, South Africa, Nigeria, Germany, and India, just to name a few. We've already covered every continent in the world except for Antarctica, and there are really many more nations covered uh, or if you look at it another way, we have newborns and toddlers all the way up to people who have been grandparents for years. Uh, the ways that different people spend their time during the week looks vastly different across our church community. We've got different income levels, different uh, family situations, different temperaments, different struggles. Yet we are one. We are the church. We're beautifully uh, brought together because God has saved us by Jesus' death. We're not supposed to be clones of one another. So talking about Christian culture, I think, is a bit of a sketchy concept because the gospel transcends culture. There have been so many times in my life where I have felt 
an instant strong bond with someone who's totally different to me uh, purely because of the fact that we have a shared trust in the blood of Christ. And a beautiful implication that follows from this is that because we are a community built on grace, that puts us in a position to show that grace to each other. Because the very foundation of our community is grace and is mercy, that makes it possible for us to be a community filled with uh, incredible forgiveness, mercy, and selflessness. Because after all, we've first all received those things from Christ. So that's the second reason that Jesus' death is good news. By it, God established his church and he unifies it. And thirdly, uh, Christ's suffering and death shows his great love for his church. So not only is Christ's coming and dying a sign of God the Father's love for the world, as it says in John 3.16, it is also uh, the, the ultimate expression of the love that Christ himself has for us, for his church. Jesus died for his bride, the church, motivated by love. And we see that in uh, Ephesians 5.25, where the Apostle Paul instructs husband to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus gave himself up for the church in self-sacrificial love. He laid down his life for the church. And that picture of love seen in a husband self-sacrificially laying down his life and his interests for his wife is supposed to be a reflection of that self-giving love of Christ that he has for his church. And in John 5, verses 12 to 13, Jesus says to his disciples, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So the love that is willing to lay down its life for another, as Jesus has done, that is the greatest love that there is. So Christ, uh, Christ's death shows us with total crystal clarity, uh, the love that he has for his church. A couple of weeks ago, Matt was speaking about uh, God being the creator of heaven and earth. And he mentioned Ephesians 1, where it says uh, that even before the foundation of the world was laid, God chose us, predestining us in love for adoption uh, through Jesus. And so the love of God in Christ was with us from the very beginning of this story. And uh, it's now the thing that drives his willing sacrifice for us on the cross, and it continues even now and into the future. So there's the third reason that Jesus' death is good news, because it displays his great love for his church. And if you're not a Christian and you're listening to this, uh, please don't think that the church is some sort of closed group uh, that may unfortunately have been how you experienced it in the past. But the reality, the spiritual reality, is that uh, Christ's uh, church is open to you because Jesus' death extends an invitation to you to believe in him and to trust him and in trusting him to become one of his people, justified and brought back into right relationship with your creator. So if you're listening to this and you're not a Christian, I would, I would urge you to think about this. Have you believed and trusted Jesus through whom you can have life? 
Now, I've used the word truth quite a lot uh, today uh, while speaking to you because truth is really important. I've been talking about um, how Jesus' death is good news because of its powerful flow-on effects for us. But of course, good news is only really good if it's true. And reflecting back on that passage we read uh, from uh, the book of John 18 and 19, Jesus with Pilate, something very interesting happens in their verbal exchange with each other. Just after Jesus says to Pilate that he has come to bear witness to the truth, Pilate poses the question, what is truth? So he's sort of uh, relativizing truth, or at the very least, he is uh, downplaying its importance or relevance in this situation. But he's doing this while speaking to the one who is the very embodiment of truth. Some people do this today too, this relativizing of truth, particularly around the question of uh, faith and spirituality. Maybe you've had someone say to you before regarding your spiritual convictions, that's your truth, uh, that may be true for you, but it's not my truth. And sure, when you, when you really push someone on it, uh, they probably don't actually believe that multiple worldviews can be true at the same time because that logic breaks down pretty quickly. But at least uh, by saying that, they're downplaying the importance or relevance of truth in that situation and about that question. But Jesus' claim is that he himself is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only way through which to come to the Father. So in doing that, he's asserting that truth is both absolute and vitally important. He came to bear witness to the absolute and singular truth, which is himself crucified for us. And that is truth that we can really rejoice in. At the beginning, uh, I asked the question, why is Jesus' death good news? And these, these great truths that flow from it, they show us exactly why his death is good news. We can rejoice because Jesus' death has brought us peace with God. It has established his church and it displays Christ's great love to us. So while this wasn't expected by the Jewish people of the time, and while it also kind of goes against our expectations uh, today of what we typically associate with victory and triumph, this was God's plan for salvation in his infinite wisdom, that Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And through that death came victory over sin, uh, which has brought us who have faith in Jesus from life to death. Let me pray to finish. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word to us today. We thank you so much, Father God, for the death of Christ. We praise you that through that death, we can have peace with you. We can have a right relationship with you. We praise you, Lord God, that through that death, uh, you have established your church and you unify us as your church. And we are filled with joy that through that death, we see the great love that Christ has for us. Lord, we pray that you would fill our hearts with joy and with thankfulness as we contemplate the death of Christ and all that it means for us. In his great name we pray. Amen.